Welcome to the Death Dialogues Project podcast. Our aim is to bring the topic of death out of the closet by creating open conversations surrounding death, dying, and the aftermath. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Full disclosure, today's guest on the Death Dialogues podcast episode is my husband, Stephen Jennison. He is a retired cardiologist who specialized in congestive heart failure and professionally interfaced with death quite frequently. And that is where our work together began. We'll talk more about that in this podcast. I want to honor him for all of the support and all of the help and management he's given the Death Dialogues Project. So hopefully Stephen will see that his message for us is valuable too. Come along for the ride. So thanks for joining us today, Stephen. It's a pleasure. So what would you like our listeners to know about you and your background and maybe how it could relate to the Death Dialogues Project? Um, I come from a, a clinical background. I was a cardiologist, I've now retired, and so had a lot of uh, clinical exposure to expected and sometimes completely unexpected death, and was privileged to be on the sidelines to see how the medical profession handled that, how the nursing profession handled that, and how families handled that in the acuteness of that event. And then subsequently, over time, um, as the listeners may be aware, you and I, as husband and wife, have lost, uh, in my case, brother-in-laws, mother-in-laws, mums and dads uh, through this uh, cycle of life that we all find ourselves in. Yeah. And that's been in the last little over two years. So we had an onslaught of personal deaths, personal losses hit us. So one thing that struck me early on in our career, just to give people a little bit of a background. So Stephen uh, and I met in the United States and I was running a program within a hospital called a partial hospitalization program and that was treating people with mood disorders and anxiety disorders sometimes with co-occurring addictions and eating disorders and as I gathered the, the statistics um, for the program on the multi-axis diagnosis frequently there were in fact more times than not there were medical complications so I started making rounds um, to the doctors just to let them know about our program because we were taking uh, a big uh, cognitive behavioral therapy approach and a lot of mind-body work that we were seeing was helpful with managing disease. Meanwhile, I was a cardiologist in part of a private practice group Um, There were 42 private cardiologists all in the same group and uh, I had had an interest in uh, heart transplantation and in heart failure 
And as I, shall we say, matured, it became more and more apparent in the scenario of clinical medicine that managing chronic illness with terms like lifestyle change, compliance with medications and diet and exercise, it became just astoundingly obvious to me that an individual clinician could not take on trying to uh, turn the ship around, so to speak, um, in the in the world of, car- of, of cardiac disease or heart-related disease, and in fact, I think in any other disease. And so I migrated from being a standalone cardiologist to realizing how inept I was as that and needed the skill set of fellow uh, nurses, dietitians, pharmacologists, pharmacists, and uh, the mental health brigade needed to be on board. And so uh, in my early days in Springfield, um, I was given enough leash to form uh, what at the time was quite a a kinky term, which was like a multidisciplinary team. And in my request to look at the mental health aspects of chronic disease and acute disease and cardiac disease in general, um, I reached out looking for a psychotherapist slash psychologist slash psychoanalytical approach, uh, looking for someone who had a lot of mental health background and exposure to bring to the table because chronic disease and how we as individuals deal with it uh, is stressful, anxiety-provoking, associated with depression, and way at the end of the spectrum is a a little segment called um, mental health. But in fact, the vast majority of that grey zone between mental health and normality is where we all sit and in amongst all that manifests uh, clinical disease, either acute or chronic. And that's how I was on a quest to find someone with Becky's skill set. So basically, we professionally collided. I was given uh, his name by one of the cardiac nurses that knew he was going to be bringing this multidisciplinary clinic over to our hospital. And I met with him and was interviewed by him. And that's where it all began as far as our professional connection. And we worked together and connected, I would say philosophically connected uh, well. And the professionally, I'm talking about professionally because it was much later after I had left that position etc that we ended up back together as a couple so but these were our early days together and how we were able to vet each other (laughs) when it was time for us to to meet each other and have a relationship we knew a little bit about each other or we knew a lot about each other because when you see each other walking in this ground with other people it's very telling so one thing that struck me about Stephen and his approach with patients that I had never seen, and just a reminder that I started out in 1982, graduating as a nurse, and worked as a nurse to put myself through school 
to become a, a therapist um, and licensed clinical professional counselor. And uh, that was a long adult haul. And so I did a lot of nursing, first of all, in the physical areas, but then in the mental health side of things as well. So what struck me after seeing many doctors in action with Stephen was his connection with his patients. I've never been around a physician before who took the time that he did to actually listen, ask the hard questions, um, dig very deeply, connect with them, tell them about the patient and your ritual with her of singing Shania Twain songs. So let me let me back up here because I'm already embarrassed and this is kind of going to need to vomit in a bucket first. So let's just get this. And, and, and I just want to get this out on the table that within the realm of or the world of cardiology, there are all kinds of different subspecialities. And I had an interest in heart transplantation and in heart failure. And um, as a result of that, um, I was privileged to work with some phenomenal cardiologists who, dealing with acute problems, uh, were very comfortable to pass on to me the chronic diseased patients that they felt they could no longer deal with acutely. And so when Becky talks about this relationship with my patients or patients in general, I, I, it's very important you understand that because these were patients with heart failure um, that were dying, I was kind of... Um, the grim reaper in in terms of uh, as a cardiologist in the sense that you know we were on a, a road trying to keep them on the planet um but inevitably um with the aggressiveness of uh, heart failure a, a lot of them would die and by the time they had been referred on to me their partners and spouses and family had woken up to the fact that a lot of Boxes had been ticked and obviously the outcome had not been as they had wanted. And now they were seeing this Englishman working in the mid middle of uh, America uh, talking about life and death stuff. Uh, because at some stage, someone had to start to bring to the fore the fact that, you know, if you presented a hospital with heart failure, then the chances of your being alive in six months is 50%. I mean, it's that bad. If you've woken up short of breath, huffing and puffing and fatigued and have been diagnosed with heart failure, then 50% of you are going to be dead in six months. So uh, in a way, I needed to um, present that to them because most of the time, uh, a lot of promises had been made by the rest of the medical profession and uh, those promises had not been fulfilled. So I don't want it to sound for a second like I had a more special relationship with my patients than any other medical profession, medical practitioner or, or nurse or whatever. This was just a, a an area of interest that, that I had. Well, and let me just swoop in and say, I he had a cardiology, the practice he was with was huge and it was renowned and it was full of amazing guys and women who had great relationships with their patients, and I heard that. Um, comparing to my previous life, and um, the thing about Stephen's work and the rest of the physicians within his practice is we heard it from the patients. The staff heard it from the patients. 
um, how much they felt valued and how much they felt heard. And I would, I would argue that with that entire practice, um, which is now called what, Stephen? Prairie. Oh, uh, Prairie Cardiovascular Consultants. Yes, um, in Illinois, a very, very highly esteemed and very um, brimming at the top with doctors who connect with their patients. But yes, he, he was of a different breed and the time clock wasn't always running. Um, and well, I think the credit, I think I'm just wanted to lay the, the groundwork. The credit must be taken for both my immediate cardiology bosses and the hospital bosses realized that if we were going to run a heart transplant program or a heart failure program, it wasn't all about uh, individual practitioners. Uh, it was about creating a team. And I cannot st um, stress enough uh, that uh, the importance of the privilege of being able to work with uh, experienced nurses as well as experienced pharmacists and uh, dietitians and exercise physiologists uh, just a team that had each that had the abilities to support each other and really the quest of the team was to find the best that we could for the individual patient and family and your team was amazing the the expertise was phenomenal but once again you can have all the expertise in the world it's the relationship that the patients feel and see and your team was excellent at providing that connection so yeah i just wonder it came up for me as you were speaking i know one thing that i ran into speaking with your patients in the clinic setting was the devastation of the words congestive heart failure and a little history there, which I don't know that we have to dig deep into, but as you mentioned, you had started a heart transplant program, but the, with the heralding of more pharmacological um, miracles, basically, you put yourself out of business and you became known quite as a congestive heart failure specialist because, and many times in clinic, we were having referrals from all over that were coming to you for a second opinion if they should be getting a heart transplant and um, I don't know that I ever saw one of those that you felt needed a heart transplant. You would start them on treatment and we always would hear back. And so you got really, really amazing results um, with your treatment and you were well known for that. But the fact remains, I always was putting my hand up why can't you get the name changed? Why does it have to be congestive heart failure? That right there, and for me, connecting in, in that helper sort of way with your people, there was work that had to be done around unpacking the words congestive heart failure. We have one heart, and that was very anxiety-provoking for people, right? Yes, the, yes, it's a it's an unfortunate term, and I'm I'm not sure how you get around that. And again, I just want to make sure that besides the multidisciplinary team, it was also circumstantial that, as Becky has described, as I was um, looking at heart transplantation versus heart failure management, there was an explosion of 
pharmaceutical products, drugs, beta blockers, uh, ACE inhibitors, spironolactone, mineral, mineral corticoid inhibitors, a whole load of medicines became available that could have a dramatic uh, impact on uh, the management of this malignant condition. And what is more, if they were actually used and applied, could remove a lot of people, as happened in our case, uh, remove a lot of people from the heart transplant waiting list because, in fact, uh, they no longer needed a heart transplant, i.e. their heart failure could be managed medically. But what I had noticed, and many of us have noticed this in the trans heart transplant world, is so now you put a new pump into somebody and lo and behold, after the magic of the first 12 months of excitement about existing with a heart transplant, heart inside you, old habits creep back in. And so if you had been a smoker or you'd been an alcoholic or you had been a diabetic that really struggled with the attractions of food and looking after yourself, lo and behold, by the time the honeymoon period was over, those um, habits that contributed to your heart disease could well start to manifest again. So again, the importance of having a multidisciplinary post-transplant team that would help the patients try and stay on the straight and narrow. Because as we all know, to uh, an individual, uh, we all struggle with temptations, whether it's in the form of uh, nicotine or alcohol or not following a, a regimen for taking medic medicines, etc., etc., etc. Yeah. So I'm, I would say it's fair to say that all of us on the team were always looking out for ways we could connect better with patients and make meaningful um, roads into change for them. And uh, one thing that I had done always, uh, kind of feeding off of Herbert Benson's relaxation response, was teach diaphragmatic breathing and the relaxation response. And uh, I'll make a really long story short, was led to uh, heart math and found heart math. And we dove into that and I started using heart math technology with our patients, which was absolutely beautiful because suddenly I went from the hippie girl coming in to tell them to breathe and isn't that silly to having technology where they could see the results in real time of achieving that autonomic nervous system balance with breath work. And Stephen and his right hand, amazing nurse Claire and I, we went off to California and met with our heart math and became further trained with that. And we ended up doing a study with 150 patients. And um, actually the criteria was anybody that had been seen by a cardiologist because we were seeing a fair amount of people that came into the clinic because they had been in the emergency room and were having symptoms that looked cardiovascular but would end up finding out that they were anxiety based and that can but that doesn't mean that they're not then even more at risk for cardiovascular events and effects later on because all of that is real and as Stephen referred to earlier you know we have ignored in medicine and treatment to look at the person holistically and it all is tied in together because anxiety 
actually stems from the autonomic nervous system being in balance. So that was amazing and actually started using that technique as a foundation for some people that were dealing with some acute grief issues as well. But then the other thing that happened, and this was after Stephen and I were together and working more intensely together, um, one Sunday afternoon there was a, uh, in the Sunday New York Times, there was an article and what struck me was it was about, um, it actually was about moms who were dying, who were leaving letters and videos and information for their children. And it was still very touching. But then as we continued to read, there was reference to Harvey Chachnikov, who is a um, researcher in Canada who had done uh, created an intervention he called dignity therapy and he did that with dying cancer patients and basically it's an intervention which requires a therapist to interview the patient and we did it we talked with Harvey and he hadn't done it with congestive heart failure patients yet so we did it exactly to his protocol and that was opened up a huge door for us um, to walk through as far as helping our patients meet death. Um, that could be a whole nother conversation because as a therapist, as a clinician, that's probably the most rewarding work I've ever done in my life. The profundity, the appreciation, um, what the patients received from that was just absolutely amazing. And so we're in this space that Stephen's work required, we would do symposiums, didn't we, frequently. And we kind of got on the kick of including conversations about death and uh, helping health professionals, doctors, consider looking at their own mortality and reframing death as not a failure understanding that it's a normal point of life and um, trying to to encourage people to let down that guard and let themselves connect human to human in that time. Because cardiology especially, there's so many interventions, isn't there, that you can do up until a certain point, Stephen, right? And you ended up getting most of the people that were at the end point in the practice, probably, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think that, that that's true. And there's a quote here. I'm going to read it off um, just because I, I need to get it behind me. But uh, the quote is as follows. Although intellectually we all know that one day we shall die, generally we are so reluctant to think of our death that this knowledge does not touch our hearts and we live our life as if we were going to be in this world forever. When the time of death actually arrives, we discover that by having ignored death all our life, we are completely unprepared. Now, I, I, I really think that that is such a statement of the way that the vast majority of us lead our lives, which is crazy. Now, what's that got to do with medicine and cardiology and getting older and, and, and the relationship between a, phys a physician or a physician team and a patient? Well, it's, it's, I think that st statement sums it up because as soon as people start getting ill or having a, an, a medical event that was brought that they didn't sign up for, so to speak, then the fear of could this be death, could this be death starts, that drumbeat starts. 
and whether that drumbeat then manifests as what uh, has been called quote-unquote anxiety versus actual pathological disease in terms of in the in the sense of the heart of blockage to the heart or damage to the heart muscle I'm not sure but as we get older surprise surprise uh, the chances of heart disease or physical disease manifesting goes up but also with the background fear that we're all going to die one day in many people that can manifest as an so we say imbalanced worrying or over worrying or anxiety there's all those overstressed all those crazy buzzwords that come about and so somewhere amongst that you've got the physician and you've got society and where where does the physician patient relationship end and at the time that Becky and I started getting together there was this huge overhaul of Medicare and uh, physicians and nurses and hospitals were in this sort of stats gathering data gathering tick boxing mode wherever have you used this medicine tick box have you used that medicine tick box Um, have you talked to them about your diet tick box and it all became like robotic and at the time so many of the patients and families were saying look forget the robotic approach we we want to be able to talk more and of course that did not fit into the data gathering model and so again the attraction of having a multidisciplinary team because sometimes talking to the doctor is the last thing that some patients will do but they will talk to the pharmacist and it's the pharmacist that they will engage with and feel more relaxed about and open up a whole um Pandora's box of issues that really are contributing to how they are managing their health, how they're managing the medications, and how they're managing their relationships with their family under these stressful factors. Yep. So I think one little set of initials I want to mention with that bit of conversation is PTSD and how frequently I saw that with our cardiac patients and especially people who had had open heart surgery or people that had a defibrillator, Ah, let's be real, with many, many of the people. And I reckon it's because we have one heart. You know, you have a lung problem, you've got another lung to depend on. You've got a kidney problem, you've got another kidney to depend on. But um, people that had had close brushes or defibrillators that had banged off, um, it was very, very common to see a heightened anxiety response that was triggered easily by the events, the sounds, the seasons, the symptom, the um, senses uh, being activated in the way they were at the time of such events, or just an increase in overall worry. Uh, especially, let's just be real. You know, so many of us are putting the idea of death on the back burner throughout our lives, and it's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call that you're not invincible. If any of you have ever Um, straddled an electric fence and then the shock of being shocked by the electric fence which comes as a complete surprise can you imagine what it's like having a defibrillator inside of you and you're just getting on with your life you're just under the car changing a wheel and then the damn thing goes off and blows your socks off so Stephen was able to have the hard conversations with the patients. He was able to talk to them even before we started doing dignity therapy where the criteria was that you assume they have about six months to live 
when you do the intervention or it needs to be within that time frame that you do the intervention that you I'm using such clinical terms that you have the conversation and that um, so that it consists of getting back together with them creating a narrative out of it and reading that back to them which is really where the therapeutic event takes place and I feel as the conversation did as well the gathering and then they have a document that they can hold on to but um, that was something that you were already doing so that wasn't so like that wasn't a big leap for you was it to to stretch it to say hey we've got this um this i don't i don't even know what you called it therapeutic intervention that you could be a part of um because death is drawing near you were used to having that conversation with people weren't you uh, yes, I, I, I was. Uh, it, you know, as you as your as the pool of heart failure patients grew more and more and more, then those opportunities and the need for those opportunities arose more and more and more. Um, and um, so it had it, it became more and more part of the conversation. And then, of course, all the legalities of uh, whether you have some kind of a living will or whether you've talked to your children or who's going to inherit the family farm, all those things all start to suddenly spill out onto the table because life is changing and that is disorientating for family members and it's disorientating for the patient as well. And as the clinicians involved on, on this journey... Uh, the clinicians have somehow got to sort of get a handle on which family members um, can understand what's going on or in a, emotionally in a position to understand what's going on and understand the inevitability. And of course, uh, on top of all that, uh, one way that sudden death manifests itself is angry family members saying, you know, you said six months and it's uh, only been six days and they've died. And Yes, we only we don't have a crystal ball. Um, we don't know exactly when these things are going to happen, which goes back to my original point about that we need to be more open about the beauty of life, but also more understanding that uh, a loved one could disappear unexpectedly at any time, whether it's a motor vehicle accident, whether it's a drug overdose, whether it's a suicide. Um, I mean, there's just a whole plethora of things that take this away from the clinical environment and put it really into the sort of sociological environment of, you know, what is our relationship with life and what is our relationship with the acceptance of death? This brings to mind the very first dignity therapy that I did. Um, lovely, lovely older woman. And she uh, had a history of being a writer and being an artist, extremely eloquent and it was such the reminder of even when you're having those conversations to stop and ask the questions of what they want because as open as she could be about the fact that she was going to hospice and the fact that I was doing the dignity therapy with her she had one request that a physician never tell her that she was dying and I recall we were away on vacation and that happened with her and she became, she was so angry, so, so very angry. So I'm just saying that and, and she carried that. She carried it 
And, you know, we heard about it and she wrote to me and um, it was a big issue. And I think it just really brings home how when we're in these times of life and death, we cannot expect people's thinking to be what we would think it would be. It doesn't, it's not always rational. I mean, that was very rational for her. But if I had to guess in a million years, I would not thought that would have been something that she would have required. I know you, you're nodding. You remember this, don't you? Yeah, no, I remember the, um, the lady clearly. I mean, from her point, perspective, she didn't want any member of the team saying the you're dying words you dying. because um, she was afraid that that would mean that her, her team support would be giving up. And I, you're right, it was a weekend and she was admitted and it was one of my colleagues who... Usually, um, wonderful, wonderful guy, uh, old girl, <laughs> and um, just unfortunately uh, stumbled on the landmine of saying, "Well, you understand, you're dying." And the way that she heard it, the patient heard it, came across as a, you know, we are all uh, uh, abandoning you, and, and and obviously, then anger took. And it's a nice displacement activity. Let me get angry with that. Uh, individual physician and rant and rave and say awful things about them because it actually copes with me not having to deal with the underlying reality of what they're having to deal with so so yes yeah, so and and this, this this example applies to us all we're all great at um displacing our emotions um when we're not comfortable with facing them directly but as becky is describing she was asking questions like Tell me a little bit about your life history, particularly the parts that you either remember most or think are the most important. When do you feel the most alive? Those questions, that's one of the questions from the dignity therapy. This, this patient was very happy to, to handle, but she did not want the, uh, the landmine triggered by mm. the feeling that everyone was going to give up on her. Or the, that's as if somebody was looking in a crystal ball and knew for certain. She knew, but she, yeah, so, you know, we were able to circle back around and process that. Um, so, but it just shows as a concrete example of how these things are unexpected. So when you're having those difficult conversations, be it with your family or somebody in your professional arena, it's really important to stop and pause and ask them how things are sitting with them, how the conversation's sitting with them, what is it that they would like? Are there any specific areas of conversation that you don't want us to go to? So I think that we've given an overview of your dance with death through your work. Um, I want to bring up a, a, just a, a point. Uh, the people may be aware that Becky and I moved from the States to uh, New Zealand. And... In New Zealand, um, the number of specialists is just a fraction of the number of specialists that, that are present in the United States. Uh, there's a different healthcare system, a different financing system, blah de blah de blah de blah But when you are a specialist with a, as a limited resource, then whether you choose to give a one-off consultation to the patient or whether you follow up with that patient and family and say, this is now the journey we're on, I just want to say that the contrast between 
the American system whereby as long as you've got health insurance, then you'll find a physician to walk the walk with you. Whereas here in New Zealand, with such a shortage of investment in healthcare, and whether that's right or wrong, that's not my place to comment. But, you, but I, the point I'm trying to make is that the privilege of being able to walk that journey with the patients in New Zealand, uh, certainly as a specialist, is something that just is not apparent. And to see the distress and fear that that can cause in patients and family members is apparent. Of course, the squeaky wheel tends to come back and get uh, back into the clinic, but many patients are sent back with the sense of, well, that's it, it's all black and white, and Dr. So-and-so said, you've got three months, and so it's all going to be over in three months, rather than having an ongoing chronic care relationship with the patient. So what I'm hearing you say is, it feels like in New Zealand, the care is more fragmented, rather than in the way that you're not guaranteed that you have your team that is following you the entire time. And and that person that will be your go-to at all times, is that right? That That's fair. And, and I can hear the GPs in the background going, but what about the general practitioner? Absolutely, the general practitioner is key. But the general practitioner here in New Zealand, just like the primary care physician in, um, in the United States, the general practitioner in New Zealand has um, only so many tentacles. That... I'm talking about your specialist relationship. It's a given that your GP, in my book, yeah, is your go-to family type of person. But when once you're in a specialty area, is that a bit more fragmented than what we would have been used to? Uh, uh, yes, I, I would say that is. I'm, I'm just trying to... I'm trying to say that the experiences that we had in the United States and the privilege we had of working as a team and being able to support the the patient journey uh is is a rare finding uh in in rural new zealand yeah. now and i'm it's not just saying the that case of what it is I, yeah and i'm not saying that they're not specialist areas in maybe in auckland whereby maybe the melanoma clinic for instance i'm just pulling it out of but the melanoma clinic has a support staff or the genetic counseling clinic has a support staff but of course it tends those kind of resources are very much understandably focused in the big cities and then you've got to have rural people getting into the big cities etc etc yeah we could do a long long story about that in itself i'm sure what i'd like to segue to now speaking of your work and death is you know in hindsight and even at the time we were able to acknowledge it um, there, we had some huge gifts in the process. And one of the gifts was you being able to take time off at six months after my brother became ill. Um, and right around the time I think he got the cancer diagnosis and I immediately went to the States. At the same time, we have my mother who would have been 94 at the time, living with us. And um, so my brother died, Max died in January 2017. And then my mother, who was deteriorating during that process, just because of your will to live when you know 
you have a child so so ill and you've lived a good life um, 10 months after living with us died and Stephen I just want you to talk a little bit about how the professional meets the personal I mean it was so beautiful to watch you be such a wonderful caretaker with my mother um, it was also so beautiful to have your support and never questioning me flying back to the States to to do what I needed to do for the family and actually as mother would stay stand in for her be her proxy but um, it was totally it was so interesting because you know physicians you you think they're in their headspace they're not doing that direct nursing care that type of thing but with my mother um, it was so full of love it was like the love that drove it you had such a beautiful connection with her can can you speak to that experience some uh, hmm yes yeah, so this got nothing to do with uh, being a clinician but everything to do with being a, a family member and circumstances being such that I could offer that support both to my mother-in-law Wanda and to Becky whose brother was dying um, on the other side of the planet and I, I guess the, I think the point that we're kind of leading to is that conscious decision to understand that that people are with us for a limited period of time and as such whether we find ourselves able to take time off to look after that loved one or whether we consciously say you know what I think probably we're on the last chapter of the book and consciously this is something that I wish to do and there's such pressure on everybody whether it's husband or wife um, mum and dad uh, bringing a wage into the household, etc., etc., etc. So there's uh, these comments that we're making are our own observations and just wanting to honour the richness and the beauty of being able to be available to look after a loved one and a family member, of which now I have so many cherished memories of those precious times as Wanda became more and more and more frail. It wasn't my mum, it was my mother-in-law, um, but it was such uh, an important time to have that continue, continual relationship rather than the, the patient or the, the family member being abandoned because uh, Stephen and Becky have gone off to work and I'm on my own with the dogs and this is very frightening because if I fall on the ground, what's going to happen? So we were just very lucky that we were able between us, with Becky being with Max in the States, and me being here with Wanda to, to, to make that work. But I'm, what I'm trying to stress is that there's still a conscious component to that, that can uh, a couple, a partnership say to each other, you know, this loved one is getting frail. This is a limited amount of time that we have with them. How do we want that to look? And then of course that opens up the whole debate about, I promised so-and-so that I would never put them in a home. And as a clinician, I've seen some people arriving in hospital because they have had catastrophic mismanagement by the family in the 
home setting and so they've fallen and broken a hip or they have got bed sores or just the wheels have all come off because people won't be open in their discussions about that interface between supportive nursing home, rest home living versus being able to provide a degree of that in the home. And I can tell you, certainly here in New Zealand, and it was really no different in the United States, the social support services as they are were all put in a lot of effort to try and disrupt the rhythm of the support of the of the individual patient as much as possible. But there comes a time when the rest of the family have to step up and say what they have to offer in that support versus there being a safe environment for the patient maybe in a rest home, however guilty you may feel about that or otherwise. Well, I like that you ended just wrapping that little bit up on the guilt because that's what was going through my mind the whole time is no matter the choice that a person or family makes, um, you have to do what works for you and your situation. And it's very easy for there to be regret and guilt wrapped up and recurring at end of life um, anyway. And to understand that you can only do what you can do comfortably, manageably. I guess comfortably is not a great word because it's full of discomfort, but it has to sit with you. It has to be within your means, your emotional means and your um, time, you know, having the time, having the space. We, we really feel it was a bit of divine intervention that my mother, we even got her over here to New Zealand to begin with. And then the timing of that, my brother was died but started becoming ill, became really apparent in a conversation where he called me and talked to me about worrying about his memory. And um, that started a journey of investigating and him him never really being to have a conversation like that again. And, and so the thing that came up for me while Stephen's describing this is the blessing of us as a team and having him here for mother is that during that time, my grief was so, so, so heavy during even the process. I mean, when I was with him, I could be on and I was totally on. But as those of you know that have gone through anything like this, what starts coming up is just not about the here and now, but you start um, looking at your history and your life and what these people stood for in your life and the meaning behind that. And, you know, for our situation, you know, there, there was a lot of, uh, we, we had been in the trenches together, you know, he and mom and I, and I didn't want to burden my mother at her age with her overwhelming emotions. And she really did a good job, didn't she, of trying to keep a positive face. I just, there were times I just really had to have space and I could not feel it was helpful to burden her. We were pretty protective of her until we got the diagnosis because it was a six month journey and his condition was changing. And, and so we didn't clue her in every day because it was too much stress at her age. So I just want to say to the world how thankful I am, Stephen, that you were able to do that dance with me and really give mom that extra human connection and love when I was just 
needing that space because I did not want my, at that point in time, to emotionally spill out all over her. Right? Yes, I mean, she was pretty pissed off with God and Jesus uh, every now and again. I mean, that had been her strong faith all the time. But as uh, Max's illness evolved and her own frailty uh, started to manifest, um, just like all of us, she she had questions that uh, she wanted to talk about. And um, she had some of those questions with... Uh, her spiritual leader as well and needed uh, some explanations. And um, we were very lucky that uh, the local hospital had uh, uh, a wonderful uh, Pastor Sue and her team that were able to provide for Wanda a resource of being able to openly discuss those challenges of being a quote-unquote Christian, um, you know, when the tough when the tough gets going. So the other thing about mom is she had a uh, blood condition where she needed blood about every five or six weeks. And she came here, she was walking well, and she was 94 years old, so she was deteriorating. She was, um, or no, when she got here, she was 92 or 93, anyway. But she was, you know, having that kind of deterioration that you have with age, but man, she was sharp as a tack. You know, she had physical abilities that most people don't have at that age. But what started happening after Max's death was a mindful slowing down on her part. And rather than, I think the really thing that's, that screams out at me was she got a couple bugs. And during that time, she was so sick. I, you know, she would say things like, I was just asking Max to open the door and pull me through. And... Um, she was always a nap taker in the afternoons, and I remember it being very telling to me when she would get up and eat breakfast, and then, I'm so tired, and go lay down in the mornings as well. So we had to ha start having some difficult conversations with her. Well, it wasn't, it was always easy to talk to her, but, you know, there's part of you as health professionals that are taking care of your parent, and, you know, I had worked in the nursing home setting where the doctor would order, you know, the patient be walked so much, etc. So we had to talk to her about being at a fork in the road, didn't we? About, you know, you need to decide. She would say, my bed just feels like heaven. That feels so... And, and my, don't you want somebody at that age to be smiling and talk about feeling enveloped and feeling great? But we need to look at this, Mom. Is it that you are just wanting to rest and relax and that's fine? You've lived a really long life or do you want to rehab? And if you want to rehab, then we need to get you up walking more. We need to mindfully be putting more nutrition in your body. Because in hindsight, she was starting the death process, wasn't she, after Max died with that appetite sleeping more and she eventually decided that yeah you know I don't want to be pushed and I don't want to you know I'll, I'll walk when I want to walk so her long walks outside started turning into her reporting she'd taken a walk if she'd done a lap around the table and down the hall it's interesting that um I've just got a, a little I happen to have a little list here and I 
And these are symptoms that generally indicate terminal illness in patients with end-stage disease. Okay, so just bear with me because you, you might think I'm being a bit clinically heavy, but it's important to s list these things. So compromised ambulation or non-ambulatory. And so with Wanda, um, her strength to get up from the chair, to walk around, to get in and out of bed with or without assistance, uh, started to unfold. So there we are, line one, compromised ambulation. So they can't get around. So with not being able to get around, then you worry about deconditioning. And I always used to tell her what I'd always learned as a clinician, that if you take a fit, healthy man and put them in bed for uh, three days, they will lose a third of the muscle mass from the legs. And I think she, that registered with her. Other things that we weren't... Uh, having to deal with, but compromised mental status, so people getting confused, disorientated, um, anorexia or weight loss of more than 10% in the last few months, recurrent infections, increasing somnolence, weakness and fatigue. And I, I have had that slide for a while, and it's not until I lived with Wanda and saw the increasing drowsiness and the, the increasing napping more and more and more and more, weakness and fatigue, that that really became one of the, probably the loudest clues that despite her faith, despite her having a haemoglobin check to make sure that she didn't need another transfusion, that things were sliding in a, in a one-way direction. Failure to thrive, i.e. they're losing weight, they're not keeping up with their calorie intake, changing cognitive abilities, they're just can't remember whether they put the kettle on or not, whether they should put the left shoe on the right foot, uh, and um, things like that are all in some ways quite subtle, but I think it's important that when you start to see those kind of um, attributes developing, you've got to understand that we're on a slippery slope to leaving the planet against a backdrop of a chronic disease. So... Would you speak a little bit to mom's death process and how that sat with you? Oh, how that sat with me. Oh, well, um, you know, coming from the UK, I, I still have the sort of stiff upper lip type of thing. And the whole um, business of going to a funeral, I, as a child, had just never been born witness to the funeral process. And then obviously in the... On the medical side of things, I'd seen a lot of dead people and then they were put in caskets and whisked away. But I had not had the experience of uh, someone actually uh, dying and then staying dead in front of my eyes for the next few days. And um, again, that was a, a tribute to Becky uh, in having that conversation with Wanda about you know how she wanted... Um, to leave the planet and um, I think if she'd have been in the United States she may have been uh, tended more to think about uh, a, a burial approach but certainly being with us here she was quite comfortable with the concept of cremation um, and she was also quite comfortable with the concept of um, what's uh, is called comfort measures. She was comfortable with the concept that if she started to get short of breath or that she had pain, 
then uh, her wonderful GP, David Van Buren, had provided um, some uh, medications like morphine so that she knew that she had them as an arsenal to draw on if she became short of breath and uncomfortable. And with those in place and with Becky and I being around, um, she slid over the last few days before she died and and she passed away here with us at home. And then it opened up the whole business about, well, what do you do with the body and what's the approach? And, you know, obviously if you watch television, then all of a sudden a funeral home appears and they whisk the body away and that body then is in some kind of cold um, cellar or storage unit for a period of days before the funeral process. And we were just so blessed with the work that Becky had done on looking at options of um, maintaining the body here and so many little things to do so that um, family members could have an opportunity to say goodbye, friends could come by and have an opportunity to say goodbye, rather than it all having to take place behind the veneer of either the the chapel or or the funeral home. And so, yes, she died at home and she was with us for another three days before the wonderful uh, North Haven funeral home, I think they were called, um, were flexible enough to come and pick up the body and drive her off to uh, the crematorium. Picked her up in an American Cadillac. Picked her up on an American Cadillac, yep. Hearse, yeah. Yep. And we followed her to the crematorium. So, within... Uh, that's, uh, having had a, the memorial service, we had a memorial service here, yeah. if you remember, when yep. friends and family came around and famous Pastor Sue came and... sang and... Sang and... We all spoke and... Gave thanks, yeah. Mother was right there. And again, such an opportunity for everyone from our 14-year-old son to uh, friends and uh, family to be able to have time to verbalize their, their goodbyes. Uh, a very, very important part of the process. And again, putting on my clinician hat, this notion of the, the person's died and we need the bed, and so the body has to be moved to the funeral home, and the or the morgue, or the morgue, and the sort of disconnect that goes on for so many family members when all of a sudden the bo the body is now called the body as opposed to their loved one, and that loved one is uh, on their own in a dark room or in a refrigerator somewhere. It just it doesn't have to be that if you don't want it to be. And I guess that's the message that we would like to put out that there are many ways to pluck a chicken and the kind of funeral slash cremation process is again another example of how these conversations need to be had. And we were lucky with Wanda that we'd been able to have those conversations. And so we were able to follow what she was comfortable happening. Yeah, I can't resist and I'm not going to go into it, and sometime I'll share my story, but um, the fact when we're talking about mom, I always have to just say she had a very magical death process, and 24 hours 
before she died, she announced to me it was time. This is what was going on. I didn't leave her side. And she narrated the entire process until she could no longer talk. And it's full of magic and beauty, including her last breath holds huge magic. So we'll talk about that another time. So our time has flown and we're right at an hour. This is probably a good place to take a break because I think we're realizing that we will talk about more in a part two, your personal experience. But what I'd like to end on is if you could answer the question, having so much of your time as a clinician and living in an existence growing up where you didn't see the necessity to interface with death so much. How has death surprised you from these personal experiences? I think it's important that society, hospitals, funeral homes, etc., have kind of evolved into a quick the body's now got to be taken here. Uh, it's got to be locked away. Um, and this is the process that we do. And I think the message that I want to share, having had the privilege of hearing about Max's death and obviously being witness to Wanda's death, is that this intimate chapter, the last chapter of the book, um, can be potentially life-changing in the sense of that we don't have to whisk the body away and kind of close the door on on someone's life that there is a continuum that can still uh, bear out um, by having that loved one with you now I'm saying this not to, to say that everybody has to leave the body in the home because it's now the the in thing to do but I'm just trying to open up that door of if you've had an opportunity to talk with the person who is dying as to what their wishes are and if their wishes are to um, lay in state so to speak at home uh, to have a Thanksgiving service at home and then to go straight from home to either the burial ground or the cremation. Those are all things that can be done. The system isn't geared for that so much. The system is geared to do it in a particular prescribed way. But I'm, I'm, I just want to finish by saying that there are still aspects, beautiful aspects of death, important aspects of death that don't have to be closeted and, and shut away, that it can still be part of that grieving process uh, which is wholesome, important to do, and can be beautiful. And is an opportunity for more peripheral family members to get involved if they wish to. Well, thank you for taking this time today. Appreciate it. And I'd like to publicly thank you for stepping up to be a part of the Death Dialogues Project team. Um, you're providing invaluable resource to me, to the project, helping us stay focused. So thank you for that. It's a pleasure.
and we'll talk more with Stephen another time. Thank you so much for being with us and listening today. Take good care. Hey, thank you so much for tuning into this podcast episode. Interestingly, I had been asking Stephen from the beginning to be a guest on the podcast, and he didn't think he had anything worthwhile to share. Well, we've seen otherwise. Watch this space as we continue this conversation as he talks about his experience of death with his parents, and he shares more on his perspective of caregiving the dying and the choices we make surrounding our death. Thanks for listening and see you soon. I'd like to thank our sponsor for the Death Dialogues Project podcast, Death, the one thing your life can count on. We hope you've enjoyed your time with us today. We'd love for you to get further connected with our project. You can find the links in the podcast information. You can also find the Death Dialogues Project on Facebook, on Instagram, and at www.deathdialogues.net. Take good care and see you next time.